This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Political Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. First of all, thank you to everyone who got in touch about last week's Spin Doctors special. I'm glad you enjoyed it, but no, we can't do them more often because then they wouldn't be special, would they? Uh, This week's podcast is dedicated to Diz Daz Doz, who wrote on iTunes, insightful, funny, fantastic guests. I can't get enough of this podcast. Well, this week's guests are nothing short of fantastic. Matt Ford is a former New Labour Spin Doctor turned comedian who wonders why politicians say things which can be quickly proven to be untrue. David Willits, former Tory minister and now chairman of the Resolution Foundation, warns young people are losing the intergenerational war. But first, Times columnist Rachel Sylvester twice nominated for the British Press Awards on the real threat to Theresa May. Politics is an ecosystem in which the political parties are both in competition with each other and mutually interdependent. The implosion of the Labour Party is destroying this delicate equilibrium. The Prime Minister is now more scared of the Tory Eurosceptics than of the official Labour opposition, which is distorting everything she does. We saw a new opinion poll this week, Rachel, puts the Tories 18 points ahead of the Labour Party. This only happened a couple of times in the last 35 years. I know, and Jeremy Corbyn's personal ratings are now lower than Michael Foote's and he's lost support of every single demographic group, old, young, male, female, different classes, different regions. And Labour really, really is on the floor in an extraordinary way. Um, There's two by-elections this week, we're speaking before those, so we don't yet know the result, but even if they hold on to one or both of those by-elections, um, in a way, that's not the point. That they shouldn't even have been in question at this point in the Parliament. The opposition should be winning by elections in new areas, not just struggling to hold on to their heartlands. Um, and I, my, the, I wrote a column this week saying that actually it's easy to think of Labour as irrelevant, but it isn't because it's distorting what the Conservative Party is doing as well. So if you look at Theresa May, her only concern now on um, Brexit is to keep the Eurosceptics happy. She's completely completely ignoring the 48% who voted for Remain. Labour's in such a mess over the whole issue that she doesn't need to worry about what the opposition does in the House of Commons. She's maybe mildly worried about the House of Lords, which is why she went to sort of menace them. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I don't think that's distorting. So it's all about pulling out of the single market, hard Brexit, immigration, keeping the right-wingers happy. Uh, And it's the same across the board politically. If you look at the areas on which the government has made 
concessions. It's worried about business rates, social care, um, all the things that Tory MPs are complaining about. It's it's kind of happily marching across um, child refugees, scrapping the Dobbs Amendment, not interested in any of the Labour complaints about welfare cuts uh, and it's so the it's distorting this kind of ecosystem it's it's corrupting the the dynamic and it's making it uh the tory party as well i spoke to i'd be really interested what david thinks actually because i've been speaking to tory modernizers who are worried about this direction and in fact they say jeremy corbyn's bad for them david well I, I think it's bad for politics as a whole when you have an opposition that is as weak and irrelevant as labor now are in terms of what it means for tory strategy the there is an alternative interpretation which would say this is a great moment for the Conservative Party to broaden its base, to move into Labour territory in the same way as Tony Blair, when he was at its peak, was moving into Tory territory. So you don't appeal to your tribe, you go beyond it. And from my conversations with people at Number 10, I think a lot of them see it that way. However, then the question is, who are these other people? What is this uh, wider group that you might appeal to? And I suspect a lot of them say it's people in historic Labour voters who voted Brexit. That is the group they're after. So I think they are trying to broaden the Tory appeal. But for me as a Remainer, and perhaps for Rachel, you know, it's, Rachel might prefer they were appealing to a different group. But I think this is a genuine strategy for broadening the Tory base. But they're appealing to the sort of UKIP waverers mm. rather than the sort of liberal... Well, centrists. But haven't they, haven't they already got all the Liberal centrists? They, you know, they ate up the Lib Dems in the 2015 election. If you want to broaden the base further, it means going into those Labour, UKIP, you know, the Stoke-on-Trent Stoke centrals. Yeah, I, and I think the fact that, uh, you know, that we don't know how it's going to play out, but the Conservative Party has a decent chance in Cumbria is evidence of this strategy. So um, it clearly is broadening its appeal if there's a chance that for almost... Uh, uniquely in the past 30 years of a Conservative government winning a by-election, taking it from the opposition party. That tells me there are some voters moving to Tories in the light of this strategy. But on the other hand, that does make a space in the sort of centre, liberal, centre-left place where Labour has gone far off to the left. The Lib Dems are in that place, but they're still seen as not a serious political force. And it's quite interesting. There is talk again of a sort of new party of that sort of pro-European liberal variety. I was talking to a cabinet minister last night who was saying, oh, yes, the, the, the soundings are being taken again. It went quiet for a few months. But now, um, with the triggering of Article 50, there's sort of serious talk of that again. Uh, and I wonder whether you could have either a very revived Lib Dems or a new party filling that gap in the market if you like the trouble is of course in the last 30 years we've tried both of those strategies there was the sdp uh, break from labor mm. which ultimately failed and we've had a lib dem centrist strategy which took them into coalition and then ultimately failed so it's very hard to see a new strategy that isn't a repeat of either sdp or where nick clegg had eventually got the lib dems to for me within the conservative party and i don't think it's helpful to think it was right v left or even modernized or not i certainly want to see the conservative party still a party that believes in small uh, liberal values uh, a believer in free trade a believer in diversity and welcoming diversity it's part of what makes our country great that with strong institutions you can embrace people from a wide right range of backgrounds but i think that the best repository of that set of beliefs in britain today is the is today's conservative party bring you in uh Mount Ford. You, you worked for the labor party when tony blair was Prime Minister. Yes, you know, indeed. That seems like a very long time ago. Yeah, it was a very long time ago, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Emotionally and literally uh, a very what, long what time do you, ago. What do you make of it when you look at what the Labour Party has become now? 
well, what's happened to the Labour Party is a tragedy, um, and David's absolutely right that this this is a huge opportunity for the Conservatives to appeal effectively to people like me, uh, Blairites who are new Labour centrists, centre left, but want to see a pro-business government that that cares about people. In effect, I actually think that appealing to Labour Brexit voters isn't doing that because Labour Brexit voters are Eurosceptic, probably quite right-wing working-class people who may have voted for Thatcher, but they're not the sort of people that necessarily would have been on board with some of the social changes. What you've had in Britain is a huge change where people voted Labour because they were working-class, not necessarily because they were left-wing. So the Tory party is eating into the class base, but not really into the ideology of people that were Liberal Labour voters. And for those of us in the centre, and we're the majority... I, I'm worried that you have a Conservative Party that could, if it was sensible, if it, if it cared about the nation, I think, would, would drift a little bit more towards the Liberal wing, and is actually drifting right instead. And that's a concern, because, to borrow a phrase from Tony Blair, I think there are millions of people in Britain now that are politically homeless. As a former Labour member, as a former Labour staffer, at the moment, the Labour Party isn't appealing to me. The Liberal Democrats I don't really see as a viable alternative at the moment. You would look to Cameron's Conservatives, say, around 2005 and say, well, perhaps that would be something that you could get on board with. So I worry, really, that in the mainstream, the three major parties aren't, aren't functioning correctly. All of this comes down to the Labour Party, because you cannot blame a government for going where the votes are. <laughs> um, in fact, you can't blame any party for going where the votes are. The Labour Party is doing the total opposite. At least the Lib Dems are trying a 48% strategy in the way that the SNP had a 45% strategy after the Scottish referendum. My fear for the Labour Party is it's in the hands of people that don't want to win, don't know how to win, have, for all their years of political experience, never really thought about politics in a, in a very hard sense in, in terms of leadership. So I'm afraid at the moment, for people like me, whatever that means, it's quite depressing. Can, can I ask Matt a question? Because, of course, it, Corbyn gets this support supposedly from hundreds of thousands of new, recent members of the Labour yeah. Party, these idealists, young and old. What's happening to them? Are any of them beginning to have doubts? I think some of them are. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Um, I think some of them perhaps didn't have the energy that a lot of people thought they would in terms of turning up to meetings and trying to take over local branches. There are areas where that's happened, and obviously we know in Brighton that they've, they now have a lot of more militant members. I think what always happens whenever you go to the extremes is the cracks appear quite quickly. Uh, and you can see it happening with UKIP as well. Is Farage actually um, had great skill in holding that party together. People since have not been as successful. And the same is true on the left. Is Once ideological purity 
is your single most important goal rather than government or even practical policy solutions ideological purity is the one thing you're judged by of course the cracks appear because it then becomes effectively a cult of devotion rather than practical solutions. And also I think Brexit has cracked that sort of Corbyn coalition if you like. I mean certainly anecdotally in Hackney where I live those were the sort of classic liberal metropolitan Corbynistas who joined the Labour Party because they wanted a sort of um, you know more left-wing approach purist you know more fulfilling of their own dreams as it were but they're also incredibly pro-European so they're now leaving and they're complaining and they're furious with Corbyn for betraying them so he's even lost he's lost the sort of working class voters who never trusted this sort of beardy lefty but now he's lost those sort of metropolitan chattering class Islington Hackney people who uh, furious with him over Brexit. But what did these people expect? I mean, this is one of the most, <laughs> this is one of the most infuriating <laughs> things. I, I think I can see that the, the, I mean, particularly that 2015 leadership election was yeah. so dreadful. He was at least an authentic, different voice saying slightly different things and without, you know, he at least got off the fence on some issues. But it's just been a disaster ever since. And, you know, the Parliamentary Labour Party meeting this week, he said it doesn't matter about polls because we're winning on social media. This sort of mad idea, you know, as long as the, the hashtags keep coming in. I, I also think one of the things I've picked up is speaking to Labour MPs who are not fans of Corbyn. They say that their strategy of not attacking him publicly yes. does seem to be working. Yes. That they don't have that excuse anymore. And in fact, I've had it this week that the, the, now the media's been blamed. It's the media's fault for their poll ratings. It's not the PLP's fault. And anecdotally Labour MPs say that some of their members are just, they're not outraged but they're a bit disappointed in Germany actually disappointment in Germany is the first sign of it sort of going awry it does feel like there's some change in the air but I spoke to an MP this week who said um, you know he wouldn't put Corbyn on any of his leaflets ever Obviously, he didn't agree with him on staff. He thought he wasn't popular, but primarily because he thought he couldn't... He didn't think he was fit to be Prime Minister. Mm. If you've got Labour MPs yeah. saying that, how can you come to an election of any kind, you know, whether it's the local elections or whatever, with people... with him as leader? This makes me totally reassess Labour Party history because no party eulogises its past like Labour does and talks about these brave warriors like Michael Foote that were shot down by a right-wing press... What we're going through now, what the more to the point, what the Labour Party is going through now, should rewrite the way people see this sort of misty-eyed history of the Labour Party. The truth is, the Labour Party has been led for too long by ineffective individuals who had a tin ear to the public, and were totally out of step with the times in which they led. A lot of them very good people, a lot of them very clever people. But actually, the history of the Labour Party is one of ignorance, <laughs> of, of turning its back on the people. We're now living through this period where we can see in not just in technical, but in HD, how colossally awful the leadership of the Labour Party is and anyone who really understands I mean it doesn't take expertise or experience to know that Jeremy Corbyn Jeremy Corbyn's policy platform doesn't appeal to the public Jeremy Corbyn as an individual is ineffective as a leader that's not the media's fault it's not the Blairites fault it's not anyone else's fault apart from him and the people who put him there it is amazing talking to um, MPs about the two by-elections Labour MPs are going around looking grey at the idea that Labour <laughs> might win both of them <laughs> And the Tories have sort of got big grins on their faces at the idea that Labour might win both of them because then Corbyn will, will cling on and go on to um, 2020. Uh, let's move on, though, because we've got um, uh, lots to get through. Uh, David, let's talk about some of the work that you've been doing at the Resolution Foundation. Uh, what we're doing at the Resolution Foundation is challenging this story of 20th century Britain 
which said that each generation was going to do considerably better than the one before it. But this story of intergenerational progress is now under threat. How can we help younger generations to get back on track? And how can we get all generations, young and old, on board? Well, this is fascinating. It seems like almost every week the Resolution Foundation comes out with another shocking statistic about these issues about intergenerational fairness so recently we had the uh, pension in, average incomes of pensioners were higher than working age adults there's been uh, I've spoken to you before about how young people don't move on the jobs market because older people aren't uh, staying on and working and all that sort of stuff how, how and you wrote a book about this eight nine years ago yeah how yeah. did you foresee when you wrote the book that it would be such a big issue well, when, when I wrote the book, it called The Pinch, came out in 2010, I, I was taking a bit of a punt, to be honest, and it, I don't think there had been any previous book in post-war Britain which looked at Britain from the point of view of different generations. There'd been a lot about difference of class and difference of ethnicity and gender, and we were used to all those type of unfairnesses in our society we hadn't really thought about different generations and to be honest one of the problems with writing the book then was even a lot of the basic data where you could see a gender split or an um, ethnicity split asking and trying to get an age split was much harder because often it wasn't collected in those terms uh, so i argued and partly just based on the experience of seeing my the difficulties that our kids and our friends' kids had on, for example, getting started on the housing ladder. I wrote this book saying I thought that we, the baby boomers, the big generation born after the war, were leaving behind a very rough deal for the younger generation. Um, and sadly, what has happened since that book came out is I think it's become more and more of a theme because more and more people are beginning to worry about this. And as we at Resolution get into the data with much greater precision than I was able to do uh, 10 years ago now, the picture is pretty shocking. And it's, it's both about incomes and, of course, it's about assets, the two big assets you build up during your life, the pension and the house, both much harder for the younger generation to obtain. And I know from talking to ministers, it's, a, it's an issue that they're increasingly focusing on. And to what extent, because th- sometimes th- these things, they show up in data long before people start feeling it. But actually, when I've written about this recently, the reaction that I've had from it was, was quite striking i was from both uh, i had some red box readers who were older and were very cross at the idea that they were being blamed for everything but then other and it feels like it, this is an issue which sort of its time has come yeah because I mean, maybe you you were picking up the data but now it's something that people mm, talk about and think, feel yeah and and when you say kind of war we have, we have to be careful i actually think the generations do care about each other and should care about each other i think people are susceptible older people are susceptible to the argument you know we should do more for the younger generation when i as a constituency mp had residents associations objecting to new houses but the only argument you could use when these older voters were complaining was say, hang on, you do want your kids and grandchildren to get started on the housing ladder. Uh, but what's happening is that... So I don't, I don't think it was a deliberate attempt by older people to do yet down younger people. I just don't think we were thinking of the long-term consequences of our actions. And we've got to do better by the younger generation. Rachel? Um, I think what's made it incredibly salient politically is the whole issue of social care and the impact that that's having on the NHS. So you're now seeing these waiting lists growing, you know, people on trolleys, old ladies stuck in hospital for months on end because there's nowhere for them to go. 
Um, and so there's that sense that the older generation isn't properly cared for, but that it's the younger generation who are going to have to pay for that. And I think that's made that a sort of front page issue as opposed to a sort of commentator issue, if you like. And um, what's interesting is ministers, when they're thinking about this now, I think they're increasingly thinking of the intergenerational aspect of it. So you hear people talking more about um, perhaps you could have a tax on those over 40 to pay for social care um, rather than on the younger people who are going to have tuition fees, they're going to have, you know, housing costs, all of that. Um, and this sense that the baby boomers, who when will the baby boomers get to 80, then that's going mm. to be a massive social care crisis in yeah. sort of 20 years or whatever. And that this is now going to become an increasingly important issue. Of course, can I just comment one comment on Rachel, which is that, of course, she's right about the social care problem facing the very old. Whenever I talk about this issue, I get letters on Basildon Bond notepaper <laughs> in lovely copper bay handwriting, but in biro, saying, uh, Dear Mr. Willits, I'm aged 87. I've had a very tough life. Why are you thinking that I've done so well? So let's just be clear that I'm that by the baby. Of course, there are older people who are in real financial pressure. We're talking about people roughly now aged between 50 and 70 as the generation I belong to who are the ones who've done well and even now we're talking about an average but if you look at where the affluence is where the wealth is where the high incomes are it is that age group but yeah was it the Resolution Foundation this week had those figures about how pensioner wealth has gone up faster than working age yeah. income recently yeah. and what's now happening is and it's an extraordinary trend back in the year 2000 the average pensioner household has an income 70 pounds a week lower than the average working age household the crossover was in about 2010-11 when they were broadly equal and by 2015 the average pensioner household was on about 20 pounds a week higher now that of course is significantly because who a pensioner is has changed and what it's really telling you is now we've got the surge of the baby boomers beginning to retire with good company pensions that don't exist for the younger generation and with generous benefits through the triple lock you're seeing them bringing up the average for pensioners very dramatically but it's completely contrary to what a generation ago we thought we thought poverty was was poverty was amongst pensioners now there's more working age poverty than pension poverty um, Matt, one of the problems with this as a political issue is that older people tend to vote. Well, indeed. So things like the pension of triple lock, mm-hmm. free TV licences, bus passes, money for your heating bill, all that was protected, you know, protected by the coalition because, you know, bluntly because they vote and young people don't vote and so they less attention is paid to them politically and that's ha- that's what then shapes policy well that's very true and i think i think there's something even more profound than that is that we all worry about what we're going to be like when we're old and you worry about being infirm and left in a house on your own and you think well i'm young and fit enough now to weather whatever problems life throws at me in later years i might well need the state i mean i just wonder what the challenge is in policy terms then because you talk about the triple lock and free tv licenses and all the other goodies that particularly the the new labor years gave to our older generations i wonder if Policymakers need to think about a sort of new benefit for younger people, whether that's through a tax cut, whether that's through uh, a, a new form of tax credit, or whether it's, it's sort of cash into young people's bank accounts to help them get on the housing ladder or pay bills. Well, actually, what we've seen during the years of austerity is the opposite, whether it's troubling tuition fees or not being able to claim benefits for the under-25. You know, the policy area seems to be going in the opposite direction, actually. The, the, 
younger people are bearing the brunt of yeah, that. And remember, actually, in his very last budget, George Osborne uh, promoted, launched the idea of a savings scheme with some kind of match government funding alongside private savings for people aged under 40. And I remember thinking, this is the first budget announcement where I've ever heard a cash incentive budget. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Owners scheme that isn't for the over 60s or the over 70s, it's actually specifically for the under 40s. And I thought, you know, good on him, but we need more of that. And what about the, the current government? Is this an issue that, Rachel, do you pick up that they're alive to and concerned? Is, it, is this something that, that, I mean, obviously Theresa May has a lot to worry about, but is this something that she's alive to as an issue? I think definitely the issue of social care, because that's impacting on the NHS, and MPs increasingly are having concerns about it in their post back. So you talk to someone like Sarah Wollaston in Devon, there are whole parts of her constituency where it's impossible to get social care workers because it's too far to drive between all the houses etc um, and the market just isn't working the local authorities don't have enough you know you've got potential system in going into collapse with care homes going bust etc so that side of it certainly they're very aware of and also the whole issue of the pension triple lot which is going becoming increasingly controversial um I, uh, what I pick up is that they are keen to preserve that, but that that's definitely going to be a big political issue over the next few years. And I would like to see a kind of a new social contract between the generations where I, I agree about the problem of social care. So I do think we need to do more on social care. And then, in return, say we just can't afford to carry on with the triple lock. And I think there are many pensioners faced with a choice between a proper social care system or the triple lock when their pension is growing at a higher rate than benefits for any other group, would, would prefer to have a, a proper final uh, attempt to tackle the problem of social care. And just on the on the politics of this, there's nobody... I mean, we've discussed the inadequacies of the Labour Party, but mm. before the last election, Ed Miliband tried to build a case around this. He called it the British promise of how one generation should... Always, you know, the expectation that one generation does better than the last. But there is no-one sort of filling that space at the moment. Is that is that fair? There's no-one trying to publicly make, apart from obviously the, the excellent Resolution Foundation, but sort of talking about this as an issue and, and what more should be done for young people? Well, I, th- I mean, talking to uh, my old friends who are still in government, I would say uh, there is a lot of in- interest in this. I mean, Damien Green at DWP is very interested in it. I think Theresa herself, certainly the people advi- around her are very interested in it, because it's actually, for, as a Tory, it's kind of how we... It's part of the glue that holds a society together, a fair deal between the generations. And I think it's a way in which you can straddle those divisions of you know people's different cultures or different religious beliefs or different social backgrounds something we can agree on is we do want to see younger kids the younger generations having if anything a better opportunity in life than us rather than having deteriorating opportunities the interesting question is what happens on inheritance tax i think i don't know what you think about this david because the conservatives have always been incredibly you know one generation should be able to hand the assets on to the next generation um but that the the i think there's do you remember Labour got into huge trouble with a so-called mm. death tax to pay for social care a few years ago, which I think some Tories are now slightly regretting having run that because they're now beginning to think, should we look at that? And I don't know what you think about that, David, whether that's a way of uh, redressing the unfairness, perhaps, between the generations or whether it's, you know, the Englishman's home is his castle. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think on social care, it, it, 
For me personally, I don't think it is unreasonable to say you've had big costs for social care. After you die, it is a claim on your estate. And I personally think some kind of system like that, which individual local authorities do already, is part of a fair way of funding social care. When it comes to property, I mean, another thing that is very odd is the structure of council tax, which means that once you're uh, above 600,000 or so, there is no, and in London, those properties then go up one, two, five, ten, twenty million. There's no further higher rates of council tax, which means that very expensive properties, particularly in London, the southeast, are have grotesquely undertaxed through council tax. I think those are the kind of ways of that into it, which may be a better way in than a headline assault on uh, inheritance tax. Well, let's move on uh, to. Uh I'm looking forward to this, actually. Matt, let's move on to what you, have, to what you want to talk about and, and politicians and their promises and what they say. It is baffling why, especially in the age of Google, some politicians make claims which can so easily be disproved. President Trump's brag about the crowds at his inauguration being one of many. Particularly odd are false claims about themselves, events they were at or even imagined careers. Do they not expect to be uncovered? It's one of the great joys that every so often a politician comes along with a CV which turns out to be just the source of endless jokes. We had a bit of it last year with Andrea Leadsom's CV when she was running for Tory leader where, you know, she was the first man on the moon and various other things. Um, And we're enjoying it now with Paul Nuttall in this extraordinary series of things. I mean, for a by-election campaign to be dominated by someone... arguing about whether or not that a close friend died at Hillsborough yeah. is just an appalling way for a campaign uh, to have got itself in. But your point is absolutely right. Why do they say things which are so easy? And actually, the Hillsborough thing is slightly more uh, difficult. But things yes. like whether or not he played for Tranmere Rovers <laughs> or, had, or had a PhD. Yeah. Or lived in Stoke. Or lived in Stoke. <laughs> and, and exactly the same with... with Donald Trump, you know, when he said uh, at his extraordinary press conference last week, when he said that he he won by the biggest margin ever, and yeah. a reporter put his hand up and said, "Well, no, because Barack Obama's was for He said, "Oh, I was talking about Republicans." Well, no, George H. W. Bush. It's all about alternative facts. It is. What what I find most fascinating about these specific sorts of fibs or lies, when it's not stuff about interest rates or unemployment figures, things that can be sort of massaged and and different things countered, is that they very rarely matter. As if anyone considering voting UKIP would find out that Paul Nussle didn't play for Tranmere Rovers <laughs> and would say, well, that go- there goes my support for UKIP. That was the only reason I was supporting him. It, the politicians who, who tell these sort of fibs fundamentally misunderstand why the public vote and what the public are interested in. No one cares once they vote for President Trump how many people is at inauguration. It's not the sort of thing the public care about. But surely this is actually something deep in our culture, because I remember Tony Blair making claims about his involvement with football and remembering football matches. Oh, but you know, matches. he was vindicated. But he was vindicated on that, he, <laughs> because he went on football focus. He'd been asked two separate questions, and I, 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 I don't mean to necessarily come in here and defend Tony Blair. But <laughs> well, somebody's got to. Yes, he was, somebody's he was, got to. He was asked who his favourite player was, and he said, uh, or I think he'd been asked who the best player he'd ever played for Newcastle United was, or something like that, and he said Jackie Milburn but people I think misinterpreted that as him saying that he'd seen Jackie Milburn uh-huh. play from a particular point in the ground at a time when that stand didn't exist or whatever it was but I think they'd been two separate questions and I think 
if I remember rightly, the episode of Football <laughs> well, City the, the, the very intensive so any, any suggestion that Tony Blair's ever yeah. said anything which is not true, <laughs> I think we, we've, we've destroyed that. These are all claims about football, and so I, they do true. matter. It's not, oh, I care whether or not you play for Tranmere and Rovers. He's trying to say he's part of the, mo- of the crucial part of British popular culture. If you look at what German politicians get done for, German politicians get done for claiming to have defills that they didn't, and doctorates that they didn't possess. It's interesting that Paul Nuttall got in. In Britain, I know members of the House of Commons who do have doctorates and would be extremely embarrassed if this fact was revealed. <laughs> it's exactly the opposite of the German problem. So we're all trying, so what you're actually talking, we're talking about political pressures for, in Germany, they want your ministers to appear incredibly well educated, you have to claim to have this. In Britain, we want our politicians to think that they, we could imagine them in the football stands on a yes. Saturday afternoon. So there is a political And in America, point. it's about ratings, viewing yes, figures, so it's yeah. the number of people at your inauguration. And David Cameron got into trouble over supporting Aston Villa, and he supports Aston Villa like I do, in that it was what I used to say when I was at school <laughs> and exactly. collected some Dean yeah. Saunders t- stickers once. I've got no idea. I mean, I know they've been relegated, because all the movies not supported. But th- then David Cameron got into trouble because he he's, he got them muddled up with West Ham <laughs> and then said he'd flown over their ground. Obviously, it wasn't that was West Ham yeah. again, Aston Villa. But that, that's, that's trying to sort of fulfil this idea that every politician has to be but it's involved also in football. That all, as you're right, claim to have a PhD claim to live in Stoke, that there is a culture amongst some politicians who aren't, I think, used to the spotlight, that for a long time they can sort of get away with these little fibs and tales and, and lies, if we're going to be very um, honest about it. For instance, I often get attributed as a former special advisor. I was never I was never a spad. I was an advisor, but never a special advisor. And sometimes when people say, oh, we've got former special advisor Matt Ford, I think well, that's rude to kind of correct. Well, I said you were a spin doctor. Is that not right either? Well, I think anyone who's worked in politics could, could, could <laughs> potentially be called a spin doctor. Um, uh, I'd been an advisor, but never a special advisor. So then sometimes these things happen by mistake. So with Paul Nuttall, you could have a certain amount of sympathy had it not been written by him on his own website. <laughs> if someone else had claimed it and he was maybe too polite to correct it, that's different. But these these little things can emerge and it's up to the individual to say I'm really sorry I know it's rude to correct it but that just simply isn't the case I suppose what's interesting is it's the desperate attempt to be the man of the people by politicians who are so different to voters often and they're desperately trying to seem as if they're just the same as ordinary voters and actually there is this there is a gap they're trying to falsely close the gap between the electorate and politics and Chris, I don't think it works and it's fake Mm -hmm. I never think it works whenever anyone says oh all right, yeah I've been to the game at the weekend and seen the goals and things like that people see straight through it people far rather when people just own their own personality whether it's Boris Johnson saying I'm posh I'm playing a particular character. People say, I get who he is. Obviously, people present a, a version of themselves to the public. We all do in life. So that's perfectly fine. I think sometimes politicians are judged too harshly for having a political persona. But to try and pretend that you're something completely different, that you like football when you don't, that you watch programmes that you don't watch. I always prefer it when politicians rest on the shows who in Coronation Street has been to prison where they just have to say, I don't watch Coronation Street. I watch, you know, I listen to Radio 4 and I, I play the piano. And actually, Theresa May is that person. You know, she, she quite happily wears... I can't remember, I've got how much the trousers were now, but the expensive leather trousers. 995 pounds. 995 pounds. You wouldn't have caught David Cameron. You know, David Cameron was always about trying to play down his wealth and portion because he, he saw that as a weakness. Was Theresa May is just sort of take me as I am. You wouldn't catch her um, claiming to watch things on TV well, that she doesn't. It just kills it. Whenever you think of interviews where people have been asked these sort of things, when people just 
and I, I'm, I'm sorry to use Tony Blair as another example, but I remember during Leveson where uh, he was being cross-examined and someone said, is it true you've been texting Rebecca Brooks and wishing her well? And you think, it, it, that at the time was quite a, an explosive revelation and he just said, of course I have. I'm not a fair with a friend. And it just, it immediately killed any sort of oh well fair enough yeah I'd, I'd do that if it was a mate I think, I think the challenge with politicians actually is, is a bit different and more, and more demanding which is as we are such a diverse country and politicians come from themselves a wide range of social backgrounds and you can't expect to be representative of a society that's so diverse you have to show you've got and generally possess the imaginative sympathy to understand the lives of people very different from yourselves that's mm. actually what you have to demonstrate not going around faking it but somehow <laughs> don't worry I was with you in the football stands when you weren't it's all really interesting I, think, I feel like we've covered a lot, uh, a lot of ground there but the, 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 the thread which I think runs through it all is you know, it needs to be about authenticity and reflecting on the challenges that, that normal people are concerned about and actually people would be much uh, more concerned about politicians addressing social care than whether or not they were watching Match of the Day or yeah. whatever just a quick reminder, Matt Ford's new series of Unspun starts at 10pm on Wednesday, March the 1st on Dave. You can read Rachel's column on the problem of the Labour Party at thetimes.co.uk and catch up on all of the work that David's doing on intergenerational fairness uh, over at the Resolution Foundation. Just to let you know that next week's podcast will be slightly later than usual uh, because it'll be a live recording of a Red Box Times Plus debate when we ask how special is the special relationship. But if you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or on your Android device that will magically appear once the event is over. And do sign up to my morning political email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, from Rachel Sylvester, David Willits, Matt Ford, and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.